this, uh, this week I was reading uh, some article about uh, the Mariners, because they were our arch rival, and uh, their current manager is a guy named Scott Service, who used to be a catcher for the Houston Astros. And while he was a catcher, there was a pitcher for the Houston Astros named Pete Harnish. And Pete Harnish and Scott Service were apparently great buddies. Um, and uh, a few years later, though, they, they both ended up leaving the Astros to go to separate teams, and they ended up facing each other one day. Uh, Harnish was pitching that game for the Mets, and uh, Service was catching for the Cubs. Uh, and I think the fifth inning, uh, early in the game, uh, Harnish had hit one of the opposing players, and he came up to bat in the fifth inning. I think there were two outs, nobody on, so it was a good time to hit somebody in retaliation. And so um, the, the rookie uh, Cubs pitcher, you know, hit, hit him, you know, as, as you're supposed to do in baseball. And a fight breaks out. Apparently it was a 16-minute brawl, you know, one of these that starts and stops several times. But in the article I read, uh, and it was ironic because the, the fight really broke out between Service and Harnish, these guys who used to be buddies. And, uh, you know, Harnish said something and, and Service just let him have it. Um, but in the article I read, and, and Harnish was quoted as saying, it got pretty ugly. We had some born-again Christian guys throwing haymakers and stuff. It got pretty biblical. I thought it was just funny that he would use this expression, born-again Christians, and that he would think they shouldn't be fighting. Right? He had those two ideas in his mind. This was unusual, which hopefully commends the Christians on his team. Like They normally didn't do this stuff, but they got carried away in this instance. But that phrase, born-again, even though it kind of has this almost hokey, you know, colloquial thing in our political culture, because I think Jimmy Carter was born again, uh, it, it's, a, it's a hugely important idea for our faith. And it comes from John chapter 3. This is a, a famous chapter, obviously, because of John 3.16, but, but slightly less well-known is how the chapter begins, with this Pharisee named Nicodemus coming to Jesus. So let me read for us the first uh, five verses of the chapter to start off with. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. This approach of Nicodemus to Jesus is hard to characterize. Because on the one hand, it's, it's commendable that he would seek out a conversation with Christ. In Nicodemus' world, being a Pharisee, all of the social pressure was against him having a conversation with Jesus. He clearly has a high regard for Jesus. He sees Jesus as a teacher from God and a, a performer of signs. And again, some of his colleagues would say in the Gospels that Jesus was only doing these things because he was empowered by the devil. So Nicodemus is at least, at least not there, right? He's at least attributing Jesus' work to God. On the other hand, he comes to Jesus at night probably to keep it on the down low, maybe to keep it secret. Maybe it's because Jesus is busy during the day, but it seems like this is a move to be discreet. Also, Nicodemus' statement to Jesus has an air of self-assured judgment. He begins by saying, we know. 
Maybe he's representing some of his like-minded friends in the Pharisaical assembly. But says, we know. He's sized up Jesus, and he's rendered a verdict. Whatever Nicodemus says from now on is couched in what he thinks he knows about Jesus. Now, at this point in Jesus' ministry, what what could Nicodemus really have known? He probably knew about the virgin birth, I would think. He or at least the reputation of that. He, He must have known about John the Baptist and the trouble he caused. But what could he have known for sure? And when we meet someone, we often do have a, a first impression. We, we size them up. We make judgments about what they're going to be like. And we're often confident in those hunches. Like, I know what that guy's like. I've dealt with guys like that before. Nicodemus says, we know. What does he know? With that question in mind, I think Jesus' response makes more sense. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus thinks that he knows something, but Jesus is here to tell him what he cannot see. He cannot see it unless he's born again. This exposes one of the big problems of lostness. In our sin, we're blind to the truth. Paul says our hearts, our foolish hearts, are darkened. We may think we know something, But again, Paul says, we cannot understand those things that are spiritually discerned. So with this odd back and forth, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, he is blind. He needs God to do a miracle in his heart. He needs a new birth. We just finished going through the book of Galatians, and as we've gone through it, we've talked a lot about our inability to save ourselves. There's no amount of good we can do that will make us right with God, that will justify us in God's eyes. And to imagine that you can do so is to be proud, is to rely on the flesh. And Paul has told us we can't rely on ourselves when it comes to goodness. Now Jesus is exposing a different manifestation of the same problem. So just like we can't rely on our good works to bring us to God, nor can sinners rely on what we know to show us the way to God. So we're not only lost in sin, we're lost in ignorance. We have blind eyes. The Psalms and the prophets speak of this, that those who worship blind, deaf, and dumb idols will become like what they worship. So in our natural sinful state, we're blind, we're deaf, we're lame, we're dumb. Unless God gives us the gift of faith and opens up our eyes by the power of the Spirit, We won't see. But this is exactly what God promises to do in the gospel. So one of the prophecies we read today in our Old Testament reading was from Jeremiah 31. We read this great new covenant promise. Notice how knowledge figures in in Jeremiah 31, 33 and following. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So God promises a kind of knowledge, a heart knowledge, that he will write on our hearts. And through this knowledge, it doesn't say exactly how, but through this knowledge, 
will receive forgiveness of sins. This is one of the blessings of the new covenant. There's another new covenant prophecy in Ezekiel that Jesus almost certainly has in mind in this dialogue with Nebuchadnezzar. I'm sorry, Nicodemus. Two famous in guys. Jesus says in Ezekiel 36, 25, not Jesus, Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So notice the collection of promises between these two prophecies. A true knowledge of God, cleansing from idolatry by by this water sprinkling, a new heart, the gift of God's spirit. All these are the promises of the new covenant. And all of this is really what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you need, unless you're born of water and the spirit. That's the Ezekiel callback. Unless you're born of water and the spirit, you can't know. You can't see. Nicodemus, you, you think you know so much. You call yourself a teacher of Israel. And yet you haven't truly seen. You need God to totally remake your heart. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. That's the basic meaning of this text. But how would we apply this to our lives? Let's think of a few applications. The first way to apply it is to consider the impossibility of evangelism. We've all just shared our prayer request for people that we want to see saved. I want to help you consider how it's impossible. Nicodemus would have been as good a candidate as anyone for someone that we might be able to kind of talk into the kingdom. Right? He's a, he's a man who knows the Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. He, he understands all the laws. He, he probably could do some good biblical theology. He's even come to seek out Jesus. If anyone could have just been sort of cajoled into it, if anyone could have said, just, friend, you're so close, just add, add a bit of Jesus into your religion and you're, you're in. But Nicodemus wasn't there because his heart was dead. He was blind. And so Jesus' message to him is not to say you're almost there. It's to confront him with his utter spiritual bankruptcy. Now, I'm not saying this is the evangelistic tactic we have to use every time. But I am saying we need to go into our evangelistic encounters in prayer, relying on the word of God and the spirit of God. Without God opening blind eyes, there's no hope. So if we want to be faithful evangelists, we should meditate on the impossibility of salvation. It's impossible for you, the evangelist, to convert anybody. It's impossible for the sinner to know or to reach God on their own. With us, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So we should let the impossibility of evangelism drive us to pray fervently and share the gospel, trusting in God's power to save. We know that God does indeed open blind eyes because he's opened our eyes. Lord willing, we've seen friends have their eyes open too. So meditate on the impossibility of evangelism. A second implication here is that we have to be clear in our own minds about the gospel. 
Again, hopefully our time in Galatians has served us well, providing some gospel clarity. But if we are confused about the gospel, how tempted might we be to give false assurance to a man like Nicodemus, someone who knows so much and seems so interested? It's enough that you've come to ask Jesus questions, we might want to say, to encourage him. Again, I don't know that Jesus is giving us an evangelistic approach for every situation, but we can observe some interesting things that he does. Again, he confronts Nicodemus about his great need. He says, you must be born again, something that Nicodemus doesn't even really understand, and certainly he can't, he can't do to himself. But his words to Nicodemus don't then turn fatalistic. Right? It's not, you must be born again, and you can't do anything about that, so just wait around, I guess, and see what happens. Right? That, that's not what Jesus says to Nicodemus. Right? No, I think Jesus and what follows is seeking to persuade Nicodemus. So he, he tells Nicodemus, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't know these things? Presumably that means Nicodemus is, a, again, a knowledgeable person about God's word. And Jesus is telling him, and essentially, you need to search the scriptures more. Give more attention to what you already know. Part of Jesus' persuasive method with Nicodemus is a, is a rebuke. Basically to say, you haven't looked closely enough at what the scriptures teach about me. Go read Ezekiel and Jeremiah again, he might be saying. But it's also a call for Nicodemus to listen more carefully to Jesus. So Jesus tells him that, um, truly, truly, in verse 11, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Nicodemus' marching orders are to attend to Jesus' words, to listen closely to Jesus. And then Jesus helps him with an illustration that he'll understand. It may not make much sense to us, but he talks about this lifting of the serpent up in the wilderness. It's a, it's a recall back to something that happens in the book of Numbers. When God sent snakes into Israel's camp, because they grumbled against God. Venomous snakes that were biting the people and people were dying. So they're under judgment, they're dying, and God gives Moses an instruction to create a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole and lift it up and promises that anyone who looks at the serpent will not die. We have judgment and salvation in this little picture that he provides. And Jesus says that this picture of what had come upon Israel is a picture of himself. It's a picture of what Nicodemus needs to do. Jesus is the, the one lifted up, which is ironic because it's a, it's a word that means exalted, but how is Jesus lifted up? On the cross. Nicodemus needs to hear he's, he's snake-bitten by sin. He's a, he's a Pharisee, he's, he's smart in the law, but he's dead in sin. He's under God's judgment, just like those people back in Numbers. But he can receive new life by looking to Jesus. And that's where Jesus ends the illustration. He brings it home in John 3.15. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. When you read this, it's almost like John 3.16 is just the, the summing up of this message to Nicodemus. That God sent his son to the whoever believes in him should not perish. So in so many words, Jesus' gospel presentation is essentially to Nicodemus, you're dead in your sin, you're under God's judgment, and you need to believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus 
as he's lifted up before your eyes. And if you do that, you'll receive eternal life. Are you clear on the gospel? Let's just take it for granted that if, if we were trying to share the gospel with a, a first century Pharisee, we would all struggle a bit. Like, that's not our natural environment. Jesus has the clear edge on us there when it comes to ministering the gospel to Pharisees in the first century. But can we share the gospel with a, a 21st century Houstonian, a resident of Spring or Magnolia or wherever we happen to go to work? Can we present it in words that make sense? Can we present it in a persuasive way, the way that Jesus seems to do to Nicodemus? Do we seek to persuade? If you want to grow in clarity about the gospel, you might pick up the little tract we used in Sunday school last spring, Two Ways to Live, or read Greg Gilbert's book, What is the Gospel? Or there are probably dozens of other gospel tracts you could get from Legionnaire or Desiring God or Grace to You. Learn the gospel for yourself so that you can meet your friend where they are and, and share it with them and share it in a persuasive way. You might not use a numbers illustration about lifting up the serpent with your, with your friend, but can you share it in a way that aims to persuade? That's what Jesus did. The evidence in the Gospel of John is that Jesus was persuasive. So in John chapter 7, Nicodemus stands up and defends Jesus. And his fellow Pharisees say, are you from Galilee too? Are you a disciple? And at the end, when Jesus dies, Nicodemus is there helping Joseph of Arimathea, bringing spices to anoint the body of Christ. Are you clear on the gospel? Can you preach the gospel? Can you speak it to a friend? We must know the gospel so we can speak it clearly. These first two applications are about our evangelism, but I think Jesus' teaching also is very helpful for us as we live the Christian life. Because we are born again, we need to lean into our new life in Christ. One of the wonderful things I've enjoyed about Galatians is that Paul doesn't say anything in just one way. He gives us multiple ways to understand it. So he's talked about the, the blessing of the gospel most pointedly and, and um, rigorously in terms of a legal phrase, right? Justification by faith alone, that we are declared not guilty and declared righteous in God's eyes because Jesus took our sin upon himself and his righteousness is counted to us. So he gives us this legal metaphor or legal reality in which to understand our salvation. But then he goes and describes it in familial terms too in Galatians, right? He tells us we've been adopted as sons because God sent the Son and the Spirit of the Son into our hearts by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So you can understand yourself to be justified and not guilty, and then you can understand yourself to be a, a son, a free son. And that, that leads us to this other idea of freedom, that we're no longer enslaved to sin's guilt and power, but we're free. We're alive. We're dead to sin and alive to God. We're no longer enslaved to the world, but we've died to the world, and we live to Christ. He says, then we live by the Spirit. But all these different ideas swimming around of ways to describe who we are, justified, adopted, spirit-indwelled, free people. I think we see something similar in John 3, this collection of images to show us who we are, born again, completely new. We're cleansed, he says, washed with the water and the Spirit, born by the water and the Spirit. So cleansed, hearkening back to the, the prophets, 
cleansed and purified from the stain of idolatry. We are given new hearts. We are given knowledge by which we can know the truth about Jesus. We're given eyes to see. These are all great gifts of God that describe who we are as born-again people. So the application first is just meditate on these gifts. Let these images kind of wash over you. These, these different ways God has of characterizing who we are. They're all kind of bound up together and you must be born again. As, as Jesus calls back to what the prophets said the new covenant would be like. So thank God that he's given you new eyes. And then aim to keep Jesus in your sights. Look at Jesus. Or so to the Spirit by setting Jesus and the gospel before your eyes every day. Live as the new creature you are. Feed your faith with the things of God. Meditate on all of these descriptions of new life in Christ and ask, how can I rely in Christ in this way or that way? How can you know him more? How can you see him more clearly? How can you live as one purified by Christ's washing work? If you are purified, what business do you have with the things of impurity? If you've been given this new knowledge, then feed your faith with God's word. Grow in your knowledge of Christ. If you've been given new eyes, why, why gaze longingly at what your neighbor has? Lean into your new life in Christ. Closely related to this, we have to see that the assumption that we are born again is the basis of our fellowship in our churches. So come to church assuming that your brothers and sisters are also born again. Have that as your baseline assumption that the people in my church are spiritual people and they are hungry for the things of God. And so it's not presumptuous just to strike up an out-of-the-blue conversation about the grace of God in your life or about something encouraging that you read in Scripture. It's not presumptive to assume that we all have sins that we're struggling against and that we need God's strength and help to fight and that we actually want to fight them because we're alive in Christ and we know that we're dead to sin. We should assume that. We should assume that the Spirit is at work in our brothers and sisters. This is the reality that roots our fellowship. We have been born again. We're the born-again community. So it's fine to talk about the Astros and the weather and whatever else floats your boat, but make it a point, a deliberate point, to have spiritual conversations because you know you're talking to spiritual people. Fellowship around the gospel. Lean in to being a new creature in Christ. We see that God's work in a person's heart changes everything. Nicodemus had a hard time grasping this concept. It sound far, sounds far-fetched to him. And truthfully, it is far-fetched. Not, not in the way he thought. You don't have to enter into your mother's womb a second time. But, but how amazing is it that God can make the blind to see? It's all the more strange that this new birth is only possible because Christ died. It took Christ's death and resurrection to make it possible. So that by faith in him, we too have died. We do no longer live the old life, the old man is dead, the new has come. We are raised to walk in newness of life. We are born again. We are spirit indwelled. 
We are washed in the blood people. All the cliches are true, and they're much more glorious than we've ever thought. So since we are born again, may God help us to live that way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful truth and this wonderful gift that you have not given us a good example to follow. You've not just given us some some wise proverbs to hear and, and listen to and try to improve ourselves. You have given us new life. You have united us to Jesus by faith in him. So we truly have died. We're no longer who we once were. We are truly alive We look forward to who we will one day be when we see Jesus as he is. So we pray, Jesus, that you will come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.